Ever since I heard about your love, your faith in the Lord Jesus, and your love for all the saints, I've not stopped giving thanks for you, remembering you in my prayers. I keep asking that the God of our Lord Jesus Christ, the glorious Father, may give you the spirit of wisdom and revelation so that you may know him better. I pray also that the eyes of your heart may be enlightened in order that you may know the hope to which he has called you, the riches of his glorious inheritance in the saints. And in these words, and his incomparably great power for us who believe. That power is like the working of his mighty strength, which he exerted in Christ when he raised him from the dead and seated him at his right hand in the heavenly realms, far above all rule and authority, power and dominion, and every title that can be given, not only in the present age, but also in the one to come. And God placed all things under his feet and appointed him to be head over everything for the church, which is his body, the fullness of him who fills everything in every way. We're going to look at these verses, God's incomparably great power. Paul continues his prayer. He's given thanks for the believers, and he prays that they would be given the spirit of wisdom, that they'd be enlightened, that they would know the glorious inheritance of being a Christian. And then he prays this, that we would know God's power. Now, that's an interesting expression, because what do you think about when you think about the power of God? Sometimes it means feeling. That's what we think about. We think about, we feel the power of God in, as we sing or as we read or as we pray. Sometimes we have it in terms of signs and wonders. If only we could um, you know, heal the sick and if we could raise the dead, then that kind of power would surely, that would convince people to believe. Sometimes Christians understand it as political power, if only we were in, in charge in parliament, or physical power, just, you know, health and strength. And all of those things may at times be part expressions of the power of God, but that is not what Paul is really talking about here. I remember going into our local newsagent down in Stobswell, at the top of Albert Street. Albert Street, you can get anything in Albert Street. Forget, you know, Manhattan or whatever, just Albert Street is, has got the lot. And at the top of Albert Street, you go into the newsagent, and I remember the man uh, uh, who was there at the time who owned the shop, he said to me, David, what do you think of this? I said, what do you mean? And he put his hands on me, and I had a, a thick jacket on, and he laid his hand on me, and I could feel my skin burning. I said, how do you do that? He says, I've got the power. And uh, he's kind of like a pagan New Ager. I mean, he's not even remotely interested in Christianity. And it was really, really weird. It was a thick jacket. And I'm looking, thinking, what's he got in his hand? What's he? No, it was just, he said, I've got the power. Now, you imagine what a Christian would do with that. I've got the power, you know. And, and you've seen, have you seen, have you ever seen Benny Hinn on stage? And I'm using the word Christian very, very loosely in this respect. When Benny goes, someone comes up and he goes, like that. And then the person falls over as though the power is the ability to zap people. Is that the power of God? Is that the kind of power that you want? That, that um, Say I have the kids up here just now, I go, ping, and they fall over. And you go, wow, he's really powerful. The power of God is really present in this place. That sounds like a caricature, and it is. It's a horrendous caricature of the power of God. I tell you what is far more essential for us in terms of the power of God. We feel so weak. We feel as though we are spiritual failures. We are 
overwhelmed by the power of sin. We are overwhelmed by the temptations of the world. We cannot even, like the disciples, when Jesus is, is, is on the mountain, when Jesus is meeting with the light, we can't even stay awake. We, we, the basic, simple, straightforward Christian stuff, we really struggle to cope with. We struggle with problems in this world, and Paul writes to this church in Ephesus, and he says, but God's power is sufficient for you. He's saying you don't have to do it on your own. He uses, in this one sentence, he uses four words for power. Um, I put them up in Greek, not to show that I know Greek, because I just got them out of commentary, so uh, I couldn't really say that, but um, it's really interesting, the four different words he used. Two of them we recognize from English, dunamis, from which we get the term dynamite. That's the ability to accomplish something. And Paul is basically saying, spiritually and perhaps in many other ways, we don't accomplish things without the power of God. Or energia, from which we get the term energy. I will guarantee you that about half of the people here, if not more, are, you just, you've run out of energy. You know, you're that Duracell bunny without the batteries. You know, you've, you've just, it's just gone. You run out of energy. And it's not just because you're getting older. You are spiritually and physically and emotionally and psychologically absolutely exhausted. You, you just have no, you, you, you don't even know how you can continue to the next day, never mind the next year. It's the word kratos, which means the power to overcome obstacles or to move obstacles aside. And then there's the word isthus, which is the, the, the power that's described in terms of physical sport and exercise. And he uses all those words, not because he's trying to make clever distinctions, but because he's putting them all together under this whole idea of the power of God in Christ. And you'll see what it's for. Colossians 1 verse 11, because Ephesians and Colossians interact with one another a lot. Colossians 1 verse 11 says, I pray that you would be strengthened with all power according to his glorious might so that you may have great endurance and patience. See, we don't get that. We think you endure and you're patient when you don't have power. But when you get the power, you're going around doing lots of stuff. But... To have great endurance and patience, to continue the Christian walk, to follow Jesus Christ, requires an enormous amount of God's power. And I'll tell you why it requires that. Requires that because the devil is against us, because we are weak, because following Christ is the most important thing that we can do. And he wants to trip us up. He wants to stop us and he wants to prevent us. And the power that you and I need is... Um, in the words of, well, I don't think it's Eric Clapton's words, but Eric Clapton did a version of this uh, song, beautiful blues song, Dear Lord, give me strength to carry on. Sometimes people will say that as a sense of exasperation, not as a prayer. Give me strength. Um, We are saying it as a prayer. We are saying that we are weak. We are saying collectively as a church. We don't have it. We don't have the ability. We don't have the strength. We don't have the dunamis. We don't have the energy. We can't move aside the obstacles. And Paul says, yes, I know that. That's why I'm praying that God 
would let you know his incomparably great power for us who believe. Now, let's see what that power is, first of all. It's the power of what he did in Christ. It's the power of the resurrection. Now, that, is, when you think about it, is an extraordinary thing. Maybe that you're here, you're not a Christian. And when Christians talk about the resurrection, in your mind, you're going, that's unbelievable. And in actual fact, those of us who are Christians need to take what you are thinking a bit more seriously because what you are thinking is correct. For someone to be raised from the dead is the most extraordinary thing. It is the most unbelievable thing. Dead people do not rise. It is a sobering and a heart-rending and an incredibly humbling experience to see a body of someone you know and someone you loved. You want them back, but dead people do not rise. You know that. And when dead people do rise, as the Bible indicates through the power of God, particularly in Jesus Christ, that is an extraordinary thing. There are far too many Christians who go, yeah, I believe in the resurrection, and then move on, and we forget it. We don't grasp, we don't understand what the power of the resurrection is. God arrested the natural process of corruption. As soon as you die, your body begins to corrupt. But God arrested the natural process of corruption in Jesus Christ. More than that, he didn't just reverse the process of decay, he overcame it. He raised Jesus from the dead. Numerous verses in the Bible, Romans 8.11, the Spirit who raised Jesus from the dead, living in you, 1 Corinthians 6.14, by His power, God raised the Lord from the dead, and He will raise us also. It is an extraordinary, powerful, and wonderful, and an incredibly deep thing. And what Paul is saying is this. God's incomparably great power, which raised Jesus from the dead, and you do not get greater than that, is the power that is at work in you to help you right now to live for Jesus Christ. Look also what he did with that power. He seated him at his right hand and he exalted him. The ascension, what we call the ascension, gave him life immortal, glorious and free, promoted him to the place of supreme authority and power. Psalm 110 verse 1, sit at my right hand until I make your enemies your footstool. The enemies here are the demonic powers and all who support them. He made Jesus the head over all things. Christ is glorified and raised over all the creation. Every rule and authority, every power and dominion, every title that, that can be given both now and in the future. Colossians 1.16, for by him all things were created, things in heaven and on earth, visible and invisible, whether thrones or powers or rulers or authorities, all things were created by him and for him. Now, what happens in Colossians 1.16 is also what's been spoken of here in Ephesians 1 and verse 21, where he lists the powers, and he is talking about spiritual powers. There are different powers in this world, but there are unquestionably spiritual powers. The argument here is, are these benign or are these evil? And the implication is actually that they are evil. There are spiritual forces at work within this world. There are spiritual forces at work 
within your life. There are spiritual forces at work within this community. And some of that is angelic, and some of it is demonic. Now, just because people take this stuff and make it into extremes, just because uh, people misapply and misunderstand this teaching from the Bible, we shouldn't ignore it. If you've ever been involved in spiritual warfare, you'll know what I'm talking about. If you've never been involved in spiritual warfare, actually, you have, but you just don't know it. Sometimes, for example, you can find that uh, when you're feeling really discouraged and depressed, there can be a physical cause for that. You're tired, you're exhausted. There can be an emotional cause because of relationships. There can be all kinds of different things, but very often what the devil does is he takes things and he uh, uses those things to attack us spiritually. So that when Jesus is delighted, when Peter says, you are the Christ, the Son of the living God, the devil takes Peter's natural exuberance and Peter's misunderstanding and uses that to attack Christ so that when Peter then immediately goes on to say, Lord, you will never, you will never go to Jerusalem and die. That won't happen to you. Jesus looks at Peter and says, get behind me, Satan. Because he knew that the devil was using that to attack him. And when I talk about demonic attack, I don't mean, as can happen sometimes, that there is a a, a direct spiritual experience which you are completely aware of. What I mean is that the devil will use different things, ordinary things, circumstances in your life to pile and pile and pile upon so that you are overwhelmed. That's why in the Psalms, David, for example, talks about how the floods overwhelm me. He wasn't thinking about standing in the middle of a river and waves coming past him. He was just thinking about everything that was happening to him, people attacking him, his family discouraging him, his own thoughts and darkness and fears coming in on him. And he's crying, Lord, save me. And that's when we say that Christ is the head over all things. The demonic powers, that's why you can say to the devil, depart from me, Satan, as Jesus did. Go away from me, Satan. It's not, again, this kind of spectacular uh, casting out of demons and so on that people want to talk about. It's just the very simple thing saying, Lord, don't let me be overwhelmed by the darkness which comes from the devil, the father of lies. Don't let me be overcome by the lies, but let me experience and know the power of the risen Christ. So we see that. We see that in terms of his um, ascension. Christ was exalted as well. All things were placed under his feet, Psalm 8, Psalm 110. The Psalms so full of Christ, and Christ is head over everything. Man is mortal. Human beings are mortal. We are weak. We think our minds are strong. They are not. We think our bodies are strong. They are not. We can be laid low by a virus. We can be laid low by bacteria. We can be overthrown in our minds just by a doubt and a fear being placed into that. We cannot overcome death, but Christ by his resurrection has done so. Man is fallen. He cannot overcome evil, but Christ by his resurrection and ascension and headship has. The paradox of modern society is that people are told you have the power and they can't do it. 
The paradox within the Christian church is we know that we don't have the power, but we rejoice because Christ does have the power. Now, the question then is, well, if Christ has the power, what, why, what does he do with it? How does he display that? And that's where he goes on to talk about Christ in the church in some extraordinary words. God placed all things under his feet and appointed him to be head over everything for the church, which is his body, the fullness of him who fills everything in every way. It is done for us who believe. It is done for the church. Now, there are words in here. I was looking at some of this stuff, words like head, kephale, words like church, words like fullness. And if you want to, there are thousands of articles that have been written about these words and how they connect together. I I just don't have that much time to read them all, and I honestly don't genuinely think it is that complicated. What is the church? We talk about the church. It's very important when we understand what we mean by the church. I hope that most people here would realize the church is not the building. This is not. We talk about St. Peter's Church. Virtually everyone will think of it as being this building. And even those of us who are Christians will very much identify with that. We thank God for the building, but the building is not the church. The building is where the church meets, but the church also meets in people's homes. The church is also out on the streets. The church is not the building. And obviously the church is not the denomination. What is the church? The church, I put up a phrase there, the covenanted, called-out community of believers. Jesus came into this world. He calls his people out. He covenants with them. He promises with them, calls them to himself. And he calls us to be together, and he calls us to serve him together. And Christ is the head of that church. No pope, no bishop. No minister, no pastor is the head of the church. No prophet, no evangelist, no one human being is the head of the church. Jesus Christ is the head of the church. And that's important because what Paul has just said is Jesus is the head of the universe, and he's saying he's also the head of the church. And we need to grasp that, and we need to understand it. The phrase, our church, is a really bad phrase. It's not our church. It's his church. And we need continually to be reminded of that because of what comes from that. Christ is appointed to be head over everything for the purpose of the church, which is his body, the fullness of him who fills everything in every way. Now, there are different ways these words can be connected and joined and understood, and I'm not going to go into all the details, but if you are concerned about any of it or you want to ask more questions, please feel free to do so. But we're talking about what is a full church. It's not a building that is full because the church is not the building, and how can you say the people of God are full because there's so many people? That's not what it means. Nor is it saying that we're a full church because we have an extremely busy program, because we have lots of different things to do, and wow, this is a full church. No, the key is in the fullness of him who fills everything in every way. You can understand it from the language in three different ways, and I think the last one is the most accurate. One is that Christ is the fullness of God who fills Christ as he fills all things. And that's quite a difficult concept, but the idea of God 
filling Christ and then filling all things. The other is that the church fills Christ the other way around. This is how John Calvin understood it, that as the bridegroom, Jesus Christ is incomplete without the bride. This is what Calvin says, after the same manner, God says that he does not consider himself full and perfect except by gathering us to himself and by making us all one with himself. In other words, the extraordinary thing about Jesus Christ in his humiliation as he came to this earth is that Christ so committed himself to us that Christ could not be complete on his own, but called his people to himself. And that image of the bride and the bridegroom, that fits that. It's a very profound thought. It's a very difficult thought, but it's, a, it, it's an incredibly wonderful thing. It is true that in one sense, God does not need us, but it is also true that in another sense, we could say that Christ does need us because he has put himself in that position. But maybe I think the most obvious way to look at this is what's in terms of what's called the passive sense. The church is that which is filled by Christ. The head fills the body with powers of movement and perception. When you're brain dead, you're dead. You might have a hand, you might have legs, you might have a heart. But if your brain is not functioning, then you're you're, you're dead. The whole body is inspired. The whole body is motivated. The whole body feels through our heads. The brain is just a most incredible thing. I've been reading a book just now about the effects of the internet on the brain. And in modern neuroscience, one of the things that's just stunned people completely is up until the late 20th century, most uh, doctors and so on believed that in effect the brain was like a machine that you would, that would use expressions like it's hardwired, you're hardwired for this and you're hardwired for that. And more recent research is showing that the brain is actually incredibly malleable and that it constantly keeps changing and that the billions of neurons that you have in your head are constantly developing. And that's one of the reasons why, as we do particular actions, our brains are being reshaped. And that the, the, the complexity and the wonder of the brain is just phenomenal. And Paul is using that, that idea, and he's telling us that Jesus Christ is the head of the church, and he fills everything. Colossians 2 verse 9, for in Christ all the fullness of the deity lives in bodily form, and you've been given fullness in Christ, who is the head over every power and authority. The church is his mystical body, Ephesians 4.12. We then have his spirit within us. To fill has this idea of becoming present to and active in respect of. And when it says that Jesus fills the church, what it means is this. It's not, or a full church, let me put it this way. A full church is not a church building that's filled with people. And it's not a group of people who are really busy and have got very full lives. A full church is when Jesus Christ is present amongst his people and active in respect of his people. It's when Christ really does shepherd us. It's when Christ really does rule us as our king. It's when Christ really does intercede and pray for us as our priest. The power at work in the church, then, is the power of Jesus Christ at work. And that's the same power that brings about the new creation, 
The same power that brings about the old creation. The same power that raised Jesus from the dead. The same power that's going to bring a new universe in total harmony, united under Christ. We as the church get a foretaste of that. So the church is holy. The church is precious. The church is awesome because Christ works in and through his people, in and through his church. I think it is a a wonderful and an extraordinary thing that that is what is being spoken of. So we bring this all the way around full circle, and we say that the power that does all this is the power that's with us now. It's the power that brings the dead to life. It's the power that's brought us to a real and saving relationship with Jesus. It's the power that raised Jesus from the dead, the same power that gives us spiritual life. It's when you come and you say, Lord, I believe, help my unbelief, that that power is at work. It's when you come and you say, Lord, I have so many doubts and fears. I've just got faith that small. And Christ says, yeah, but faith that small, combined with my power, can fill the whole earth. Paul's prayer is that we would know that power. If we did, it would stop us devaluing conversion. It would stop us continually searching after other things. It is the power that gives us the strength to carry on. I cannot think of a single person in here who, for whom this is not the most wonderful prayer that you could ever pray, that you would be enlightened to know the spirit of wisdom and revelation, that you would know Christ better, that you would know the riches to which he's called you, and you really would know his power. Because you know it and I know it, we feel powerless because we are powerless. You know, when you meet somebody who thinks they're really strong and really powerful and really together, and they've re- they're a horrible, arrogant, self-righteous, pompous person who you know is going to stumble and fall. The alternative to that is not to be a worm crawling along the ground. The alternative to that is not to slide into a blackness and a darkness and a depression and a despair. The alternative to that is to say, I know this, I understand my weakness, I know I can't find a way out, but he went into the grave, and he rose from the grave, and that same power that raised Christ from the grave will raise my body also, but not only that, that same power is now at work within his church, and he's feeding us, and he's filling us, and he's strengthening us. And even when you don't feel that, remember the power is not the feeling. It's still happening. You could not survive one second as a Christian if God's power was not in you. You can't cope against the world. You can't cope against the devil. And worst of all, you can't cope against yourself. It's Christ who gives us this incredible power. Now, the last thing I'll say comes from Romans, Romans 8. And it's such a, such a wonderful passage. And I just get so encouraged by it. We'll read from verse 34. Who is he that condemns? He's asking, who's going to condemn you? Who's condemning you? You condemning yourself? The devil condemning you? People around you condemning you? You beating yourself up? Who is he that condemns? Christ Jesus who died. Right? Jesus, he's saying, Jesus died for you. Why are you condemning yourself? But more than that, who was raised to life? The cross is not enough if you leave out the resurrection. 
The cross without the resurrection is a symbol of defeat. The cross with the resurrection is a symbol of victory. Christ Jesus, who died, more than that, who's raised to life, is at the right hand of God and is also interceding for us. Think about that verse just for a moment. You pray for yourself, your prayers go no higher than the ceiling. You don't understand what you're doing, you don't understand what's going on all around you. You don't have to understand, you don't have to know why. Because right now, at the right hand of God, is someone who was raised, who died for you, who's interceding for you, who's praying for you. And that's just such a wonderful and such an incredible thing. Who then shall separate us from the love of Christ? Who's going to come up to that throne between God the Father and God the Son and say, "Uh uh-uh, no way, no way, that's not happening. You are not, you're not listening to that prayer. Who is going to condemn? Who's going to separate us from the love of Christ? Shall trouble or hardship or persecution or famine or nakedness or danger or sword that is is written, for your sake we face death all day long. We're considered a sheep to be slaughtered. No, in all these things we are more than conquerors through him who loved us. And please note the wonderful use of words. Not we are more than conquerors because we're great. We're more than conquerors because he loved us. For I am convinced that neither death nor life, neither angels nor demons, all the principalities, all the powers, remember Christ is head over them all, neither the present nor the future, nor any powers, neither height nor depth, nor anything else in all creation will be able to separate us from the love of God that is in Christ Jesus our Lord. You're feeling proud and arrogant. Humble yourself before the power of Jesus Christ. You're feeling broken, discouraged, depressed. Be lifted up before the throne and power of Jesus Christ. God's power is at work in his church. I'm not saying that God's power is at work in every church. Because not everything that calls itself a church is a church. But I'm saying this, that this is God's word. And we're a bunch of messed up sinners. But we believe what God says, and his power is at work in our midst. It may not be spectacular. Sometimes it will be, but most times it won't be. But it's more than sufficient for all that we need. We thank the Lord. Let's pray. Lord, thank you, and we pray that we would know your imparably great power. Help us to understand it. Help us to apply it. Help us to believe it. Help us to stop looking inward at ourselves or to stop looking outward at our enemies, to stop seeing demons behind every situation or to just be afraid all the time. Help us, O Lord, to see you for who you really are. Lord, it is the truth, the absolute truth, that Jesus was raised from the dead by your power. And by that same power, our resurrection is guaranteed. And that same power is at work in your church. And we come with our brokenness and our hurts and our pains and our sorrows and our weaknesses and our stumblings and our frustrations and our anger and our bitterness and our confusion and our darkness. And we come with all these things, O Lord. And not one of them can stand up to the power of of the love of Jesus Christ. Who shall separate us from the love of God in Christ Jesus? No one. Not the pits of hell. Not the darkness of our own souls. Not the confusion and weakness 
of our bodies or the powers that exist in this world, not one of them can stand up to that glorious resurrection, liberating power of Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. Amen. You've been listening to a sermon from St. Peter's Free Church in Dundee, the historic church of Robert Murray McShane. For more sermon content, please visit our website at stpeters-dundee.org.uk. That's www.stpeters-dundee.org.uk. For information and training on persuasive evangelism and how to share your faith biblically, as well as Christian commentary on the latest current affairs in Scotland, please visit the website of SOLAS, the Centre for Public Christianity, at solas-cpc.org. Once again, that's www.solas-cpc.org. Thanks for listening.